Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 100. 100. I thought you were going to say 100, to be honest with you. I, I, was, I, I really fought myself not to. Uh, this is the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate investor, a broker at Rare Real Estate, as well as director of economic research there, and also a partner at Land Bank with Nick and some others. My name is Nick. I'm a real estate investor, partner at Land Bank, and mortgage broker. But you probably know that because this is episode 100, and uh, if you've listened to some of the other episodes, you've probably heard that introduction before now. Dan, I know you're a big astrology guy right you're always asking people what their signs are yeah that's me playing with your crystals and all that good stuff well i'm a numerology guy and numerology is a study of numbers and their influence on human life now according to numerology each number has a certain vibration that can influence our lives in different ways and today's number is obviously 100 is that and like the, the number 100 is a powerful number. Is that like the um, the number 23 that Jim Carrey movie is all like numerology? <laughs> Maybe less uh, less of a good example. Less but. dark. Yeah, hopefully this podcast isn't going to be as scary as that uh, Jim Carrey movie. So according to the number, or t- according to numerology, the number 100 represents new beginnings, fresh starts, and infinite possibilities. This number also symbolizes unity and is made up of two zeros joined together. The energy of the number 100 is very positive and optimistic. Look at that. Who would have thought two zeros like us joined together? And look at that. We hit 100. Now, it can be a lucky number for those who are starting a new business or undertaking a new project. The number 100 is also associated with the law of attraction and divine guidance. This is getting deep. If Get this the number, crystals. If it, yeah, seriously. I, I'm actually, I can feel them vibrating in my pocket, my crystals. <laughs> if this number is appearing in your life, uh, it is a sign that you are ready to embark on a new journey. Uh, this is a time to let go of the past and start fresh. The number 100 also symbolizes enlightenment and self-realization. A couple of things that I have not done yet in my life. So be prepared for some major growth and expansion, apparently. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, this was all kind of a joke, but when I was researching this, I was like, okay, you know what? The what the hitting one hundred with anything is, you know, your first hundred sales, your first hundred dollars. My grandfather, great grandfather, lived till ninety nine years first old, almost hit hundred. Man, first hundred grand. I mean, you know, your first big money moment when you make that hundred grand is huge. Yeah, it is, and I think it also. I mean, we talked about this. So Steph bought me that, like, she bought me this album cover thing. Yes, for yes. The wall for our first episode, and we were always saying that we would have to get another one for our hundredth episode. I think this is a big. Steph, is a if big you're listening, yeah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, but it is a big milestone, right? And uh, and then we also have our anniversary episode coming up in a few weeks, and we'll have a cool episode lined up for that one. I think because we really haven't even told our own story yet we don't have any is, we don't have any good stories. we're not really that interesting so that's the reason why by the way but a lot of people have asked us to do that like you know just tell us a little bit about yourself and and we i think the audience is big enough now that it's worth getting to know us so as this podcast turns 100 episodes old we want to send out a sincere and heartfelt thank you to everyone who has listened anyone who has written a review or left us a rating and if you haven't we know who you are i mean you know who you are <laughs> i don't know who you are uh 
anyone who's shared this with a friend or posted on social media, those things go a long way to help us grow. They really do. And that's what, that's what helped us get here to this hundredth episode. Yeah. I mean, it really makes a, a big difference. It makes a big difference to, to, uh, to the algorithm and all that kind of stuff, but it really makes a difference when Dan and I are able to see, you know, a star, um, that wasn't there before or a rating with some incredible words. Now, you know, when we first embarked on this journey, we had no idea what it would look like or how it would turn out. We just knew that we loved talking about real estate with one another. And to be here a hundred episodes later, it feels amazing. It feels like a long time, but at the same time, it feels like we're just getting started, Dan. So again, a very sincere thank you. Now, the other number other than 100, we have another special number to chat about today, and that is the number 40. Well, actually, that real number is not 40. It's 40 million. And that is because there are now officially 40 million Canadians. So Canada's population growth rate currently stands at 2.7%, which is crazy. That's on par with most emerging markets or African nations, especially, mm -hmm. which are still growing at what most people consider a rapid pace. That's the highest annual growth rate since 1957 when Canada was in the middle of its post-war baby boom, says Statistics Canada. And it's not driven by birth rate anymore like it was then. Canada's population grew by a record 1.05 million people last year, and about 96% of the rise was due to international growth. Yeah, exactly. And last year, the population grew by 1.05 million. That is, that is crazy because we're not a big country. So... And again, that's the first time in history that that population rose by more than 1 million people in one single year. 96% of that was driven by migration, immigration. It is funny. I think like the last time that we had a, a jump in population that was this big, it was when they added Newfoundland as a province to Canada. Is that what it was? Yeah. So it's likely that Canada's population growth, which is leading the G7, will likely top 1 million again this year. Those figures are staggering considering what I just mentioned. That was 624,000 people in 1949 that was added when Newfoundland joined the Federation in Canada. With Canada now adding the equivalent of two Newfoundlands <laughs> a year, to its population, the world's demographic ranking is changing very rapidly, especially while like other countries are actually declining in population. Most, most of the major countries most, are. Most, yeah. Uh, yeah, like not, I mean, major might be the wrong word, but uh, you know, like uh, I guess developed advanced, countries. Developed, right? Yeah, advanced right? economies. A lot of, like look at Europe. Yeah, um, the only countries that are still growing are, are uh, emerging markets, mm -hmm. developing countries. Now, and Canada. Yeah, and you've probably heard us talk about California on the show before, comparing California and Canada. Well, Canada's population has now actually surpassed California for the first time since the early 1980s. Yes, that's right. We finally made it. We're bigger than one of the United States. <laughs> Um, however, the economic output has not kept pace. Shocker. California's GDP was 1.7 times higher than Canada's in 2022. Now, I know we're here to talk about Canada, but it's fun to talk about California because who doesn't like California? Politics aside, the weather is fantastic. Now, if California were a country, it would immediately be a global force to be reckoned with. It's no secret that California is the largest and most productive state in the U.S. between Silicon Valley, Hollywood, agriculture, and of course, tourism. There are plenty of things to be excited about when we are talking about the Golden State. 
Now, California's GDP in 2022 was $3.6 trillion. That's representing 14.3% of the total U.S. economy. And if California were a country by itself, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world and more productive than both India and the United Kingdom. The U.S. GDP was 24 point. This reminds me of this comparison, like if um, if Apple was a, a country. Yeah. It was yeah. like if Apple were a country, it would comparably eclipse the GDPs of all but four nations. So it would be fifth biggest GDP in the world if Apple was a, a country. Anyway, the U.S. GDP is $24.8 trillion in 2021. The U.S. has the largest economy globally, and Canada ranks ninth, which is crazy to me. That like, It's impressive. Yeah, that California would be – is Fifth. bigger than that. Yeah. 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 But still, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm not shocked, but I am very pleasantly surprised to see Canada in the top 10, considering, you know, we do leave a lot on the table when it comes to natural resources and so on and so forth. And the fact that, you know, we've talked about this numerous times, the proportion of our GDP that's made up of real estate related activities. Yeah. And I mean, from a population perspective, we're not like massive really by comparison. So let's keep in mind 40 million is a lot for us. And there are now projections that we could hit a population of 50 million by 2043. So 20 years for another 10 million people at the rate that we're growing, which makes sense. I mean, if we're like, even if you keep, if you keep a million a year, which is like what the pace we're at right now, it'd really only be 10 years. Again, like my question becomes, what's is this sustainable to grow at that pace? But who knows? I think the U.S. did it, right? So let's look at Canada in comparison to the big three populations. So India is now the largest population in the world with 1,428,319,061. But as we're talking, that's probably changed by several thousand. So sure. we'll just say 1.42 billion. And China has a population. This is an interesting part. India's population is still growing. And I, I think like, you know, it's often mentioned how India is such a big role in the future of the of the global economy, um, especially like, you know, China spent all this time growing. Their GDP was growing. Population was growing. They pulled so many people out of poverty. And India is still kind of just starting on that curve, right? Mm-hmm. We know mm-hmm. a lot of Canadian immigration comes from India. So like as long as India keeps pulling people out of the middle class and they're able to and willing to move to Canada – you know, it's a it's a growth case here as well. China has a population of one point four two five billion. So just no, say the whole bit. thing. Um, you want me to one point <laughs> or one one billion four hundred twenty five million six hundred seventy nine thousand six hundred eighty six people. Might have changed since I Probably did that research bit, this yeah. morning. <laughs> and our neighbors to the south. The the difference here is is crazy. There's over a one point one billion difference in people between the U.S. and both India and China. Now, the U.S., the good old U.S. of A., our neighbors to the south, has a population of just under 340 million people. But again, that's over 1.1 billion people less than its two um, predecessors, right? So, so now let's look at some countries with similar populations to Canada in around that 40 million mark. It is interesting too, like when you think about the the U.S. being like that different in size from those other ones, and it, a lot of it is like, at what point does it st- does that growth stop? And I think China's looking at this problem right now is like as people get out of poverty, like I think you know, 
it's almost like a, this like when you get into like a middle classness like people just decide to stop having kids it seems like in the emerged world like i don't I don't know because China. Well, how are you fitting kids into a one-bedroom apartment that costs you twenty-eight hundred dollars a yeah, month to rent in, in the couple cities that people want to live in in the country? Right. It is funny because we're going to talk about like the the livability index, like the the yeah. places to live. And I've posted some content on it on Instagram today and Twitter, and people are, are TikTok, and people are just like, "This is literally just a list of the most expensive places." Yeah, in the world it is. Live. It yeah. is. <laughs> anyway, let's so so these other countries with similar populations. Morocco has about uh, thirty-seven point five million. Poland has approximately 38 million. Afghanistan, 40 million. And Iraq has just over 41 million people. So um, now let's also talk about Canada and the, and the G7. So just a reminder, the G7, it's a term used to describe the group of seven. And no, not to be confused with the seven amazing landscape painters, uh, famous Canadian painters. But this is a coalition of seven countries that have the largest and most advanced economies in the world including the United States, Germany, Japan, the UK, France, Italy, Canada, and the European Union. So yeah, we're the baby of the group by population. Uh, but a small population and respectable GDP hasn't changed the fact that Canada, and more specifically some Canadian cities, keep getting recognition as those amazing places to live by the economists, like we mentioned. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the show before. I think it was about a year ago that we that we had this because there's some, you know, repeat offenders on this list here. Uh, so the Economist Intelligence Unit, the EIU's Global Livability Index of 2023 is an annual list put out. Uh, it's ranked 173 cities on more than 30 qualitative and quantitative factors across five broad categories, including stability, healthcare, culture and the environment, and education and infrastructure. So these are the top 10 most livable cities in 2023. Ranking numbers are the same uh, where cities' scores were identical. So you'll get some some ties, I guess. Um, it is interesting too, because some of them like, um, Vancouver was number one from like 20 or 2002 to 2010, I think. Yeah. A long and time. Then, and then Calgary was the the highest in Canada last year and Vancouver just made its way back to the list. So anyway, number one, Vienna, Austria, number two, Copenhagen, Denmark. Those two are the same as last year. Number three, Melbourne, or I think it's actually supposed to be pronounced Melbourne, Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Australia, and then number five, Vancouver, Canada. So that's the first time you see Canada on the list in number five, followed by number six as Zurich, Switzerland. Then we've got Calgary and Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland, Calgary, Canada, tied for number seven. We jump to number nine, Toronto, Canada. So there we have it. Vancouver, five, Calgary, seven, and Toronto, nine. And then the list is finished off by Osaka and Osaka, Japan, and Auckland, New Zealand, tied. Dan, we've got three of the best places to live in the country. Or sorry, three of the best cities to live in the country in the world. What's your take on that? I mean, my take is pretty much the take that everybody else said in, in, my, in the comments when I posted this on TikTok and other platforms that, you know, it's pretty much just a function of you get what you pay for. Like, I'm not disputing that they're great places to live based on livability. And if we look at the criteria that they use, it's stuff like, you know, healthcare, um, you know, I think it's like the like pollution, you know, stuff like that. Access to education. Access to education. Just, um, I guess, general kind of general infrastructure yeah. in the city. But 
none of those cities, I don't think, on that list are places that I would describe as affordable to live. And so, <laughs> no, you know, I, I mean, maybe Calgary and and I don't know much about Osaka, Japan, but I don't. I think the cost of living in Japan has you know come down quite a bit since their their economy kind of peaked um, in like the nineties, but. There, these, this is a list of very expensive places. And so there's this trade-off between, and I think that there are a lot of these places are at risk of some of these things declining as the ability to afford to live in these cities gets further and further out of reach by, um, you know, increasing cost of living, house prices, whatever it is that's happening in the Commonwealth and in a lot of these countries, in a lot of these cities. Like, you're a generation away from many people not being able to afford to live in these places. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're, we're in that generation now, right? We're, we're seeing, we're seeing some of that already happen, right? The flight out of Toronto and out of Vancouver. And it's not that there's not the desire to live there. I think a lot of people do want to live there, but it's, it comes down to what kind of life am I going to have if I try to make it in Toronto, right? Or if I try to make it in Vienna, if I want, uh, you know, if I want that house with that yard and, and all those things, well, that's likely for most people, unfortunately, not going to happen in, in the vast majority of these places. Now, before we move on, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of these cities have been called specifically Toronto, um, have been called world-class cities. Now, as we've experienced in some of the cities the secondary and tertiary markets that we that we invest in and that we talk to a lot of other investors about i will say that you know there a lot of people in other places don't live the way that people do in these cities and and i don't know what those factors are if it's a combination of of you know all of the the broad categories, the stability, the healthcare, the culture, the environment, et cetera. But, you know, there is something to be said for the the way that these cities look. I mean, look, none, none of them are perfect. They all have homeless issues. They all have affordability issues. They all have housing issues, et cetera. But, um, you know, they all are pretty great places. Well, I've been to several of the places on, on here. I've lived in two of them. Um, and... They are amazing places, so it's it's tough. It's a it's a tough list. It's it's always interesting to see this this list come out every year because I feel like it never really changes. There's, there's I mean, I don't know about you, but there, I've never been. Whoa! I can't believe this one made it on this year, kind of thing. Right? No, I think you're. If anything, you're more like surprised when stuff falls off or like under, getting the understanding for why the shuffling around. Like, how did Vancouver get back up from you know a couple of years ago or whatever it was? Um, anyway, let's move on to the final portion of the show here, which is real estate mythbusters. So we are going to debunk six common real estate myths. And the reason I thought this would be a good addition to the show today is because we've been fielding a lot of questions, a lot of great phone calls with a lot of you out there who have reached out to us and, and asked us these questions. Um, or, you know, we look up on Reddit, most common real estate questions, most common myths. And, and there's just, you know, these six consistently are, are the ones. So I'll just rifle through all six of them very quickly. And then we're going to go one for one and really dissect them. Um, the first one is real estate always goes up. Dan, what's the, what's the second one? The second is real estate is passive income. The third is you need a lot of money to get into real estate investing. And number four is you need to be an expert to be a real estate investor. 
five is you need to be good at math, numbers, and accounting. And then number six is that you're on call 24-7 as a landlord. So, Dan, you ready to bust some of these myths wide open with me? Heck yeah. Okay, let's start back at number one, which is probably the biggest myth of them all. Real estate always goes up. Well, no, it doesn't, but also it kind of does. So home values tend to rise over time, but recessions and other disasters can lead to lower prices for certain times in certain areas. So following slumps, home values can increase in some areas of the country based on strong supply and demand, while other areas can struggle to rebound and some may actually never rebound. Also, you shouldn't focus on just the national trends because prices and everything involving real estate can be very micro and macro. So you have to pay attention to both. Prices can vary drastically between provinces that we've seen if you look at Manitoba versus Ontario, for instance. Um, And it can also vary within there between neighboring cities and even neighboring towns. Even houses on the same street can cannot be representable comps for one another. Of course, low mortgage rates have an indirect and very direct effect on home prices as well. Consumers are willing to take on more debt when credit is cheap, but raising rates also have a major effect. So before we start picking this one apart, Dan, I want to tell, remind everyone, go back and listen to episode two which is how Canadian real estate performs in a rising rate environment. And our most recent episode, episode 99, the era of low rates is over. The reason I'm suggesting this is in both of these episodes and many more throughout the 100 episodes that we have done, we talk about how home prices have changed over the decades here in Canada and what affects them. So then real estate always goes up. Well, what would you tell someone about in, you know, have that conversation with someone who lived in Detroit or Fort McMurray, for instance? Yeah, or even Toronto in 2017 or Vancouver in 2016. I mean, it it's just like, it's not a necessary thing to say. Like, it, like the actual correct way to say it is the purchasing power of a dollar always goes down. Right? Yes. And inflation always exists. And so real estate will go up in, in dollar terms or fiat currency terms, as the Bitcoiners might say. But, um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't necessarily go up like, you know, it probably goes up with inflation or a little bit above it. Um, and I think the I think it is an important distinction. Like you don't need to be like, oh, it always goes up. Right. It's like that's not if that's why you're buying it, you're not. You've or or if that's why you're selling it, if right. that's your if that's your right. sales pitch that it always goes up, you know, yeah. do better. Yeah. So myth number two, um, real estate's passive income. Short answer, no. The this is another major myth and misconception in real estate. And it's it contradicts another one that we're talking about, but like they don't have to be they can be mutually exclusive. Um the this you know, this misconception is that passive income or unearned income, income that you don't have to do any work for is income that requires minimal effort to obtain. I, I've yet to actually find any actual version of this. Um, it's the opposite of active income, right? Um, which is where you go and sell your labor, do a job for or business venture that, that requires active participation. Now, real estate can become passive income, you know, but the likelihood of it being passive right off the start or even in the beginning is very slim. And again, it it comes down to building a business, then owning part of that business. 
and to do that, you kind of got to build the best practices and learn them. So this is things like tenants, maintenance, capital expenditures, coordinating with your team. Like even if you're not doing any of this stuff, you still got to like make the decision, write the checks and decide where to allocate, you know, certain things. And there's a reason that it's a full-time job for funds, like that where they have this guy who's doing kind of the, the whole grunt work of it. And um, I mean, there's a reason why property managers exist as well, right? And if you are going to immediately start using a property manager, but you know, so be it. Go ahead, do your thing. Just know that you are now paying that property manager out of your own pocket. That money could have been going to you if you were able to deal with your your real estate a bit better. So real estate is passive income. No, it's not, at least in the beginning. Now it can get passive when you build up to a certain, it can get more passive, I should say, when you start building up and you start scaling, you start putting those proper systems into place. Um, but someone said something really cool on one of your Twitter spaces recently, Dan, where don't expect to make money on your first real estate deal. And that hit me because I feel like that's what most people try to do. They're like, yeah, I'm going to get into real estate. I'll do the I'll do the first one. It'll go really, really well. I'll make a bunch of money. I'll get out. Boom. Passive income. That does not happen. And it might have happened a little bit over the last few years in, in the crazy market that we were living in. But and rising many, rate. It, but just as many people got had the lo- the big loss on the first one, right? And so when you're doing the investment in that way, like when you're swinging for the fences, like you know you're either going to hit a grand slam or you're going to miss, yeah, right. And, yeah. and and so thinking about it from the right perspective and understanding what it is, literally like how you um, how you do it well in a time tested and true way, and not have to speculate or swing for the fences is is a good way to like that's why we like to approach it that way so yeah so again real estate passive income not really but that doesn't mean it's not a good investment i actually like the fact that it's a bit less passive because it gives you the ability to be more active and to add more value and to get more out of that to extract more value out of your out of your investments stuff that's more passive let's say dividend stocks you can't go into a dividend stock and be like how do i pump this up another couple points because you know i'm getting creative or you know i I can put a new tenant into this dividend stock. I can build out a new suite for this dividend stock. It doesn't work like that. Let's move on to myth number three here. You need a lot of money to get into real estate investing. No, you don't. You just need other people's money. I'm kidding. Um, We've done a whole episode on how OPM doesn't really work, at least doesn't really work in the way that it's kind of sold to you online. Now, obviously money helps regardless, right? And and that is true if you are buying your first property, your second property, or if you already have 100 properties, cash is king. This goes back to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and their idea of like having cash is like a moat and, and a moat just is, is essentially like picture an old castle with a moat around it. They essentially have the same mindset that that cash will be a moat to protect their business. Now, you don't need a ton of money to invest if you don't have it. There are many, you know, there's stuff like REITs, there's stuff uh, like Key, for instance, there's, there's you know, uh, fractional ownership in property. But if you want to actually get your hands on a more traditional piece of property, like the ones we talked about on the show quite a bit, like a duplex, and you need uh, you, you need money to get in there, that just means that you need to master other skills that will attract people with money. So if you don't have money, you need to be figuring out how to make yourself valuable to people with money, and then you will be able to attract that capital that you need. What do you think about that, Dan? Yeah, I think you're generally right. Um, you know, it, it definitely sounds easier than it is, but like I would say for, for people who are like contractors, this is an exceptionally good opportunity where 
you know, you might find somebody who has cash and wants to flip properties and has no skills and they'd probably be hiring a contractor anyway and building in a lot of risk by doing that. And so if you can, you know, take that risk for them and say, look, I'll do all the contracting for you, but I want to split of the upside rather than a profit on my contracting. Um, you know, that's like a, a very basic arrangement, but it's a good example of an arrangement where, you know, two people could flip a property pretty well. And I, I'm not a, I'm not into flip type investing, but some people are, and, and that's a good example. You could do the same thing as a burr, right? You could say, I'm Mr. Contractor, you're going to put in 50 grand cash uh, to the investor. The investor is going to put in 50 grand cash and they would have spent 50 grand in, in, you know, labor from the contracting side. Well, why don't I do that? And then we'll be equal partners in the deal and whatever comes out after the burr, we'll take the equity and we'll go do another one and we'll own this property together. These arrangements happen all the time. So Yeah, exactly. And I think before we move on, I think you should also be, if this if this is your problem, um, you know, I don't have a lot of money so I can't get into real estate investing, try to figure out how to wake, how, try to make more money, whether that's with your day job, with what you're doing, which is always the best way to do it. Figure out how to get more out of, you know, the skill that you, that you already have. But if you want to do it through real estate, there are ways, right? You can go wholesale, you can go be a deal finder. There, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, I know a guy that just literally printed out 22,000 flyers and he's going to go canvas every single home that he can, 22,000 flyers. And uh, he will get deals out of it. He won't have the money to do them, but he now has the deal. He now has that locked up. He can either go and sell that deal to another investor and make, you know, five, 10, 25 grand, depending, or he can bring someone in and say, let me do all the grunt work like we were just saying. And, you know, someone else brings the capital. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and I think that is a good way to do it. You bring somebody a deal, you build in your value, right? Like if you negotiate a good enough deal and they're getting into it, you know, you've built in the safety, you've built in the equity. Um, it's a great way to, to attract investors. So next one I think is that you need to be an, an expert to be a real estate investor. And I would say like, if anything, this is actually kind of the opposite. Um, I think it's one of the few industries where being a generalist is valuable. Like, and, and I've, I, I, I struggled against this for so long in my life because everyone was always like, oh, if you could focus on one thing, you'd be like so good. And I can't. So, <laughs> that, you know, that's that. And I think that, you know, like the world is gradually warming up to people who have like pretty severe ADHD, like I think both you and I do. Um, and, and I think the real estate space has always been pretty warm to it where, you know, you do need to know a lot. You need to know, you need to understand the the economics, you know, I think you need to be like a big, just, you just have to have a willing willingness to gather knowledge on the big picture. And a lot of it just comes down to willingness. Like it's like, okay, if I'm buying in a risk, riskier environment, which we are today, right? Like we we're thinking about concepts like recession, you know, banks, OSFI doing these tightenings, all this kind of stuff happening. Um, you know, what information do I need to gather as a generalist to make this decision safer for myself? Right. It could be, you know, is, is, there anything wrong structurally with the property? Well, you need to know now a little bit about structure, right? Is there anything wrong in the economy that I need to worry about? Now you need to know a little bit about the economy. And so, you know, you can't, you don't have to be like a, a absolute specialist in one area of, of being in real estate investment. And I think this is like where you talk about that theory of who, not how comes into play, right? Can you gather the right people? Can you build the right team? Can you find the right information? And, and I, I, I could not agree more. I think that's where... To be a good real estate investor, 
Dan's right. You need to know so many different things. You need to have, you know, how much is it going to cost to redo flooring versus how much is it going to cost to open up that wall versus is this market okay? Uh, where's, you know, how much, how, how much does it cost to get an appraisal done here? What's my sewer lateral looking like? Like there's a million and one little questions that you need to have as much information just so you know that you're one, you're not getting ripped off and two, that you can build trust with those people. So I think, you don't need to be an expert. You need to be an expert in finding the right people who are the experts, building a relationship with them and allowing them to play their roles on your team. So find that great contractor, let him be the expert. Find that great accountant, let them do your books and taxes. Find that uh, great appraiser that can go in and tell you what an actual ARV is gonna be on this place. You know, you focus on finding the right people and let those right people do what they are there to do, which is be an expert in that category. Number five, you need to be great at math, numbers, and accounting. Now, obviously you hear the word invest and a lot of people immediately like, okay, well, you know, I don't know anything about the stock market. I don't know how to pick stocks. I don't know how to do real estate investing stuff. How do I, how do I pick a property? How do I run the numbers? Now, again, this one is not true. I mean, I am not a math genius by any stretch of the imagination. Again, this goes back to the other one. You don't need to be an expert in anything, but you do need to have experts around you. Um, you know, the other thing is most real estate math isn't that complicated. It's simple inputs and outputs, right? Am I making more than it is costing me to own this property? I think this this one's funny, right? Because like many things, and real estate's one of those industries where it's really wrapped up in like the mysticism, right? They've mystified like how hard it is to build a house or how hard it is to underwrite a deal because why? Like, would they want you to pay them to do that for it? For it? You know, I mean, I understand if you're doing like sophisticated promo structures or, you know, you have hedge funds investing in your deals or you're developing a multi-billion dollar um, skyscraper, but I'm personally not doing that. And if you are, you, you know, that's great. Good Congratulations. for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but other, like, I, I mean, to me, it's like, you really only need to know one or two things about a property on paper. And actually, to be honest, the more you add to that, it, you almost get worse and worse, like with, you know, analysis paralysis, mm -hmm. right? Where you're, mm -hmm. it's like, does the property cash flow at a reasonable loan to value and interest rate? And is the cap rate outperforming the remainder of the market? Can you restabilize it at a good yield? Like, if you answered those questions, you don't need, I don't need the, I keep saying this thing on like in conversations with people, but it's like, I don't need like the lever unlevered, like triple backflip IRR or whatever everybody's yeah. using to come up. Like yeah. if you're, if you're creating all these new metrics to like try and rationalize your way in or out of a deal, like again, you've already lost. Right? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, there's also so many tools out there, right? I mean, like literally type in, Type, I mean, hey, use Lendlord, right? I mean, I, I look like a genius anytime I, I punch a property in the Lendlord because it spits out the cap rate, the IRR, the cash on cash, all that good stuff. And most people don't even care about that. I talk to sophisticated investors that own a ton of properties and they're not worried about IRR. They literally are like, does the property make money? Do I like the area? Can I add value? And it really comes down to the few simple things like that. So the shorter answer is no, you don't need to be good at math, numbers, or accounting. What you do need to be good at is basic math, 
figuring out if a property cash flows, you need to know a few numbers, which you will end up learning by analyzing multiple deals, which you should be doing. And you need to go find a good accountant and find, and if you are doing more complicated stuff, you'll likely be more experienced at that point and work your way up or go find someone that you can trust and get them to run those more complicated scenarios for you. Totally. Um, last one here is that you're on call 24 seven as a landlord. I don't know how many times I've heard this or something like this, you know, everyone's like, Oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can be a landlord. I don't want to be changing a toilet on a Saturday night it's, or whatever. It's always the toilet on the Saturday night. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be changing a toilet period. No, me neither. But, um, no. Yeah, I have, I, I've, I've done that. And yep. it, it is funny, you know, you mentioned like, we own dozen of door, dozens of doors, and you know, since we've been investing together and we've built these systems properly, we've never gotten that call. I would say, when I was more amateur as a landlord, I've certainly gotten that call, and I actually have a, a washer dryer sitting here in in this <laughs> near the studio, which is in my garage now, by the way, um, that I have to go deliver to somebody on a on a property that's sort of in my portfolio outside of that, but. You know, there are, I, I think these are things that can be managed away, right? We know hundreds of landlords and I don't know anyone who's gotten that specific call, right? Now we have gotten worse calls um, and the chances of something horrible happening on a Saturday night or holiday aren't that huge, but I can guarantee they will happen if you own enough property for a long enough period of time. Yeah. Remember right after we finished interviewing Chip Wilson, I got a call that we had a flood in one of the basements of the properties. Right. And I was like, wow, right. from what a, what a high to what a low. Here yeah. we go back to passive real estate investing. I'm dealing with a flood in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. And this is really where it goes back to your team, right? And the who, not how principle. You should have a property manager that handles this for you. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe if you don't have that property manager yet, you're not you're not there yet. You don't want to, you know, it's not in the budget. It's, you know, whatever the situation may be, you can still build out systems for your business that don't include that property manager. So, for instance, if that plumbing disaster does happen, okay, well, you equip the tenant with a certain list, you know, here's a handyman that you call instead of me. Here's a plumber that you call instead of me. And ideally you've built relationships with these people. So they know that when they get a call from one of your tenants, okay, this is Nick's property or Dan's property or whoever's property. And we're going to go in there and, you know, we know it, right? So again, it goes back, it always goes back to, it's such a relationship business. It really is. Um, you know, and again, if you have a good enough relationship with your tenant, they will try to help that, you know, they don't want to call you at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night because the toilet's broken. No one does. But, um, you know, a property manager, yeah, they should be kind of responding to those emergency calls after hours. But you're not, you're not a surgeon. You're not a doctor. You're not on call 24-7. I mean, if the property burns down and you get a call at two in the morning, good. You probably want to know your property's on fire. But if there's a leaky faucet... That can wait and, and that can be dealt with accordingly. I think it's, yeah, it's just an urgency scale, right? Like how urgent are these problems? And I've heard of certain people who, you know, they haven't even hired third-party management with hundreds of doors, but what they have done is they've hired a call center, as an example, or, a, or an answering service where, you know, it's much cheaper. It's like less than 100 bucks a month, I think. And basically um, somebody, so that there's a number between them and their their residents of their property. And... If, you know, if it's during um, the business hours, then the call will go to them. And if it's outside of business hours, it'll go to a property manager. And that property manager is paid, you know, on an hourly basis when those calls do come in. And then there's, it's also sorted by urgency. So it's like, okay, well, if it's, if, you know, if, if the problem is in these categories, then they come to me. And if the problem is in those categories, they come, to, they go to somebody else. And so 
sorting like literally just having like a and you can you can pay part-time VAs to do this stuff but like doing the sorting or the parsing through problems cuz you get to scale like parsing is a big thing like you don't want to be the you don't want to be the person that is taking the call and knowing oh I got to send this one to the plumber oh I got to send this one to the handyman like that shouldn't it, it if we want to grow that you want to get to a point where this is above your pay grade and sorry it, it's it's below your pay grade and you should be doing things that are you know improving the business not just like you know nominal tasks that can be outsourced for 20 bucks an hour or whatever i I got a good one here you want to be working on the business not in the business i've never heard that before man i'm i'm good you gotta put that on a (laughs) t-shirt speaking of which there we go nice segue yeah speaking of which we have merch i think we mentioned this a couple of times but it's just realestatemerch.ca and uh if you have any ideas for like funny shirts or whatever um or you know i don't know i just feel like nobody's really done real estate merch well and we felt that we we could uh take a good crack at it uh we've sold quite a few shirts and pillows actually the best the best seller is a couch pillow everyone's heard live laugh love before no i never heard that is that a nickel original no that one's not i have heard that one before but i've but this one this is a dan fosh original here live laugh leverage <laughs> so put that on your pillow and sit on it and uh you know see what happens perfect <laughs> um anyways guys i think that's it for today quick recap these are the six myths that we debunked real estate does not always go up but over time it kind of does real estate is not passive income until you can get it to a point where you can be less active in it but that comes with scale and systems You need a lot of money to get into real estate investing. Well, yes, that is kind of true, but there are ways around it. Uh, You need to be an expert to be a real estate investor. You actually don't. It's better to be the opposite and kind of be a master of none and have a good understanding of everything. You need to be great at math, numbers, and accounting. You do not. You need to find people who are better than you at those things and utilize them. And you are on call 24-7 as a landlord. If you're answering calls 24-7, you got to switch that up. Anyways, that's it. Thanks so much for listening, guys. 100 episodes and 10,000 more to go. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317. Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.